they never seem to get into trouble because they're always ahead of the curve. They know what's going to happen. They always expect the worst and they plan for the worst. And even if the worst happens, they're ready for it. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. It's great to have you join us here again. And if you are new to the show, welcome. And I hope you get a heap of value from it. Last week here in Brisbane, we had a, a training week for Aeropower. So all the company staff from around Australia uh, came into Brisbane and I was able to, to join them on the, the Monday and Tuesday for refresher training on risk management and CRM or human factors. It was a good chance just to walk through a bunch of topics and bring them back to you know, front of mind. And as you get busy in the job, sometimes you get you know, focused on the, on the details and the day-to-day routines and the problems that pop up. And being able to you know, get out of the workplace into a new environment and spend a couple of days just going through, uh, and some of the things we went through is you know, safety uh, system models and tracing you know, a couple of case studies back through several layers in the organization. We talked about the, the blocks that make up a human information processing and sort of rehashing that and talking about you know, how we perceive things and then uh, how we actually then incorporate that and react to it. And some of the tricks or limitations that the, the brain can actually impose on us. You know, we talked about things like um, you know, personality types, uh, teamwork, leadership, and different communication styles. We also looked at you know, the effects of stress and fatigue. And as an air crew, you know, definitely, you know, sometimes I feel like this, and, and in my definitely experience talking about air crew, is we have this idea that we are a little bit superhuman, you know, a little bit better than the general population at handling some of these things. At the end of the day, though, we're you know, very much products of our uh, physiology and the, and the human condition, and you have to work within the side those constraints. So stress and fatigue are, are very much limitations, however much we prefer them you know, not to be. And then, of course, you're know, talking about threat and error management and different ways of assessing risk and, and managing risk, the ways we can approach that. From that, though, the, the two biggest takeaways for me were not so much about the actual content of the course and, and what we were learning and, 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 I guess, revising from previous courses, but was in the delivery and the, the organization of the, the training. So the first thing was that, you know, it gives you a chance to research your personal priorities and reinforce that this is a, a long-term game plan that we're in and that the cancellation of a, a flight today because things aren't lining up it might seem a hassle at the time and cause some you know, flow-on impact uh, to operations and, and customers and things like that. But in the perspective of several years at a, at a company or from a career outlook, you know, it's not even a, a blip or a, an issue at all. And yet pushing the flight or rushing the maintenance or forcing the, the, an approach in difficult conditions, you know, that could have company-destroying or career-ending consequences. So I found that opportunity just to lift that focus back up out of the weeds and push it out, you know, long term again, and just have a, a bit more of that perspective uh, back and, and just you know reset that that point. 
uh, was super valuable. And the other point, or the, the second big takeaway for me was, you know, communication by the organization that this stuff really matters at the, the company level. So having company senior staff involved and supporting it and resourcing it financially, you know, it's obviously not a, a very cheap exercise to stop work, fly people in and accommodate them for annual training over a couple of days. And that sends a, a really strong message that the, the management and the directors are behind this and that you'll be supported if you bring problems to light and stick your hand up if you, you know, make a mistake. And again, one of the big differences for me was, you know, when you get this training in the military, it's kind of assumed that, you know, there's a, you know, a really big budget that covers all sort of stuff and it's been imposed and you will do it regardless. But when you're doing it a, a civilian operation and that all that money is being, you know, pulled out of the, the operating budget, it really shows where the priorities are for management and, and directors that they're actually allocating that you know, not only lost work time, but that financial budget to it. So that really sends a really strong message. And if you're a, a manager or a chief pilot or a company owner and someone asked you if you wanted people to report problems to you, then you'd probably say, yeah, look, of course I would. And I think that it's something you really need to go out all the time and be communicating that, you know, to your line staff and to your engineers and things like that at all levels in the organization just to, to push and make sure that they have that same mindset that you have and it's just not an assumption uh, by default. And that's not talking, you know, in particular about any kind of group at all. It's just uh, an observation that people on the line or working on the hangar floor aren't always sort of thinking about the same priorities or the same weighting as senior executives and tend to be, you know, just due to the nature of the task, much more short-term a task-focused about getting the job done today uh, rather than, I guess, you know, management directors thinking, you know, whether the company's going to be in three, six months or a couple of years' time, and having a, a different sort of viewpoint on, again, you know, cancellation of that, that one particular flight as opposed to the things that could spill out of that if things go wrong. So anyway, that's my two cents. And if it prompts you to pull out your human factors notes for a quick swim through, then that's awesome. Something else that is awesome is a few of you have been tagging people you know in the Facebook comments on the episode posts. And it's really encouraging to see folks do that as it's you know, great feedback to me that you at least find these interviews worthwhile enough to, to share with others that you think you know, they might get some benefit from it as well. So thanks very much if you've done that or tag someone and introduced the, the podcast to them. And if you're listening on your phone at the moment and you aren't driving or, or flying, and look, you probably shouldn't be flying um, or out running, then by all means hit pause and, and jump over to facebook.com forward slash Rotary Wing Show. Uh, to like the page. I'll tell you what, why don't we do this? Why don't you share a link uh, while we're talking about human factors and CRM, uh, share a link to the, the best video or resource that you've come across that demonstrates a human factors example or limitation. So a link to a, a video or a uh, you know a document or a course or some kind of example uh, that you've seen in a CRM course or just found online that really highlights a particular, you know, uh, processing limitation or a, a really good case study or example. So it could be a case study, an experiment, or even just a good book that covers it from an aircrew perspective. So I'll wait for you to uh, get back from doing that. Okay, so you're back if you did that, and a, and a big thanks. If not, well, look, try and catch up with it later on because I'd love to you know, see what's floating around out there and kind of use that network that we're building up to surface some of the, the really good stuff. It wasn't designed this way, but we touch a bit on CRM in this interview too, so it all kind of ties together really nicely. 
Bernie Walker is a flight paramedic working for STARS, which is the Shock Trauma Air Rescue Service. It's an EMS organisation that covers most of Western Canada. Bernie has been with STARS as a flight paramedic for over 16 years now, and these days plays a big part in the educational programs. So he's someone, again, with heaps of experience in a helicopter role, but this time from the, the back of the cabin. And I know I am very guilty of making the interviews for the podcast very pilot-centric, which is just a, a factor of my own background and experience. But, you know, I would love to represent a range of helicopter aircrew roles. It just seems to be that uh, loadmasters and air crewmen keep uh, ducking for cover when I uh, try to, to corner them for an interview. So I really enjoyed chatting to Bernie about the flight paramedic role, as it stretches my knowledge of the industry. And I'm not expecting to be in a EMS position anytime soon. But for those of you that might be, then Bernie gives a really good insight into many of the considerations that the team in the back have to deal with. If you listen between the lines, sort of so to speak, I think you'll also get great value from the, the current best practice approach to critical patient care when it's applied to how we tackle emergency or non-standard airborne situations. We head into the interview with Bernie explaining the EMS coverage in Western Canada and the typical career progression into the helicopter flight paramedic role. Types of organizations that do both rotary wing and fixed wing medevacs. In Alberta, there's AHS, Alberta Health Services, that does fixed wing medevacs. That team usually consists of a paramedic and an EMT. And there's right now only in Alberta, there's only one critical care transport system, and that's STARS, and that's who I work for. Gotcha. So you need about a minimum of four years of ground experience for paramedicine anyways before you can apply. And then basically, I know when I have, I was at four years when I applied to this organization and got hired, and I know I wasn't remotely close to ready. <laughs> in terms, in terms of the fact that, uh, like, when you when you're on scene, like, there's no backup, or or what sort of parts were you not ready for? Uh, no, just you basically like our system is kind of an expert when you come up on scene. So when you we go out and we typically transport the patients that. Uh, hospitals are having difficulty with, ground EMS are having difficulty with, or can't manage, or have a challenging airway that they don't want to get into, cardiovascular collapse, or what have you. Those are the types of patients that we go to. So the normality of us tends to be somebody else's crisis or emergency. In the last few years, like with new people coming into our organization, I've tried to instill in people that we don't really go to patient emergencies anymore. We go to healthcare emergencies or we go to physician or hospital emergencies. Yes, we still have to manage the patient, but we usually have to do quite a bit of catch up once we get on scene and sort things out and usually redirect treatment plans because they're maybe slightly off at times. Okay, so you're almost like a second level then. So in many cases, someone's already yeah. got the patient and then you guys are uh, yeah. taking off their hands. Okay. Yeah, 
yeah, for us at Stars, anyways, with Rotary Wing, that's absolutely the truth. So we do probably about 60-40. So we do about 40% scene calls, and we do about 60% of inter-facility transport. So who would make up a who would make up the team on the helicopter then? So you'll have two pilots, a paramedic. We have a doctor with you, and then an air crewman in the back of the helicopter. What what makes up the team? So we have two pilots. We have a critical care nurse, a paramedic, and sometimes a physician that flies with us, depending on the acuity of the call. In terms of the back of the helicopter, then is the the flight paramedic kind of in charge of the back of the helicopter? Oh, we're a total team. Resource management. So what that means is that we just usually do a lot of bouncing stuff off of between all of us because nobody really, I don't really care who you are, you don't know everything. But if you have a lot of people or two or three people that know a lot of stuff, chances are pretty good you'll be able to get 100% of the solution. And some of it depends on what types of calls we go out to. So like if we're out on in the middle of a scene call, the paramedics, I mean, that's our backyard. That's what we generally do day to day. So, you know, going out and managing patients or MCIs or anything like that, that's what we typically do. And that's what we're used to doing. And that's just common for us. Their backyard happens to be in CCU. So, you know, running infusions and having really complicated medical patients, that's what they do day in and day out. And that's just a normality for them. So having a crossover with nurse paramedic, you get the best of both worlds every time and it doesn't matter what the scene is. So you can still go through a trauma call that's still going to have a medical spill up on it. So it really marries both systems, both pre-hospital care and in-hospital care together in the back of our hair helicopter and back on on the helicopter so you come off the street with uh, four years minimum behind you as a paramedic and then into the in the flight side what sort of aviation training do you do is there a a sort of on the job training or is there a theory component and a practical is it a organized course a few years we've been and it's a fairly big leap from a ground system and it doesn't that's any place here in canada from going to a ground system into a flight program. It's a fairly big leap to get into. So there's usually a lag in education, a lag in experience, and that just takes a little bit of time. So over the last few years with us, we've identified this problem and we've initiated a program and it's it's an induction program. And we bring people in for a, a number of weeks to put them through both a didactic component as well as a simulation component and managing really complicated patients so that when they do get out on the helicopter, yes, we're still kind of green, but at least they have a better base knowledge from what they had before. And then they can go forward with that. And they're always with the seasoned, what the team makeup is. They generally ride third on the aircraft for a, their competency is signed off and they that way they have backup but they still begin to manage the calls and make some of those critical decisions that uh, that we commonly do and it's now than like 17 years when I got hired here you did your buddy shifts got all your books signed off and then you jumped in the seats and 
some days that looks pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Often there's so much gear in the back of these machines as well. So what, what sort of machines does um, STARS operate? And that's been our workhorse for since we started within this organization, or pretty close. Uh, we, start, we flew a couple of other aircraft early on in the organization. But in the last several years, we've flown the BK-117. And then just recently, over the last oh, two years or so, we've 39s. So we have a couple of those in our province as well. All right. So it sounds like, yeah, that'll be the fleet for uh, quite a while then. And um, like, how do you go about setting up? So what's on a, on a standard uh, fit out on, your, on the way out to a, to a job, what sort of medical equipment would you have in the, in the back of the helicopter with you? All the airway equipment, ventilators, triple channel pumps, um, central line access, iStats, ultrasound, IOs, array of pharmacology. Yep. Is it would it be a pretty similar fit out to an actual ground ambulance, or is there things that you would carry that would be oh, different no. to what they have? Or? Completely different. Also, in the education experience, that's expected of our air medical crew compared to ground crew, um, significantly different. So um, I don't know what, what's what's like one, what's one piece of kit that you guys would carry that um, you know you might not find in your in your road ambulance. Well, any none of the central line stuff, chest tubes, uh, ventilators generally aren't in ground ambulances. Um, eye stats out of the ground. Uh, probably half of the pharmacology that we carry. Okay, and as far as treatment goes, like you know, often when you're trying to ride in a helicopter and there's vibration and, and things like that, and even trying to map read, like do you try and do all your patient care before you actually start up and go, or is there times where it's more important to get to the, the hospital as quickly as possible and you do things on the way? And like, I'm just trying to imagine the difficulty of you know putting in a, a cannula or some of those things while you're actually in the back of the machine. So uh, yeah, what's the what's the hardest yeah. part about the, the helicopter care? <laughs> say that <laughs> I would say that they one of the largest differences is our approach to management of patient care. So managing patients uh, and what we think about on the aircraft is not necessarily and probably I know we have a transport academy program that we put together and we've ran for several years. And we brought ground EMS physicians, RTs, into the program. They apply. They get accepted into a 16-week program. And every person that takes it, it fundamentally changes their management of patients. And once they have taken the program, they will never treat patients the same again, like when they came into the program, compared to when they leave. And some of the things that we teach during the program is how not to get into emergencies and how to kind of stay ahead of the curve so that you don't put the patients in a bad spot and you don't stress yourself out because, you know, you you welded yourself into a corner that you can't get out of. So I think that's one of the major changes of, of air transport. As far as stabilization goes, uh, 
you asked two questions. One, is it going to be time dependent? Do we just scoop and run? And the other component is, do you do a lot of stabilization on scene prior to transport because of limited space within the aircraft? So to answer the first part, uh, we tend to do our scene times. We need to be skids down, skids up in 15 minutes. So you can't do a ton of things during that time. However, you can do any of the critical interventions that you need to do with the exclusion of maybe securing an airway with uh, RSI. So we tend to be on scene for a very finite amount of time because those patients need to get to a level one trauma center. For stabilization though, if an airway does need to be secured because it's going to be in the patient's best interest that we do it, or we're expecting the patient to lose their airway during our transport, then we'll take that time on scene and fix the potential problem so it's not an emergency before it becomes an emergency and then transport. Same with interfacility transports. We tend to stabilize a fair amount prior to leaving because one, we lose some of the, we lose anything audio once we get into the air. We can't really listen to the patient anymore. We have to rely predominantly on monitors and, and gases and things like that. And we have a fair amount. In the new aircraft, we have quite a bit of space so that we can do more involved procedures in the AW. But in the BK, that's predominantly our workhorse that we tend to be in. And we've been in for a number of years up until now. And it has a very limited amount of space. So you don't really want to be securing airways or doing any involved procedures in the back of the aircraft if you can keep from it. So I think, so kind of to wrap every that big question up is one of the largest things that I think we bring to the table is that we tend to not put ourselves into emergencies. So one of the, I, I read in your document, you had asked me also what's something that you can tell New Air Medical Crew, um, one of the biggest things that they're going to have to learn, and that is to anticipate what your problems or potential problems are going to be and address them and fix them before their emergencies. And I sure. think that's, as our organization, that's one of the things that we do far above and better than anybody else. No, that's pretty good because, yeah, it's, I can imagine working in the back of a helicopter, like, yeah, it'd be really, really difficult. And on that emergency side of things, like, again, I haven't done EMS jobs, but speaking with folks, sometimes it's like a, a blind tasking. So uh, I'm not sure if it's similar to you guys where you'd be sitting at the at the crew room ready to go and the job will come through, but the details will be, uh, you know, a little bit toned down so that the the decision making is based on whether it will be a safe flight as opposed to uh, what you're actually going to at the other end. Is there a yeah, like some of the dis like dispatch information that we receive and what we actually get when we get there, usually significant difference. You know, sometimes they're fairly accurate, but sometimes you know you'll get out there and they'll say, yeah, the patient's doing much better and stabilized, and you walk through the door and you're on the verge of an emergency. But they haven't recognized that yet. But that just so, sounds like it's a like a situational type thing. But it, in the dispatch process at Stars, is there an attempt to 
and back to the risk management side, is there an attempt to take some of the, the pressure off and just uh, in, the, in the planning process so there's not that kind of life-saving pressure that it's just about you know whether we can make this flight safely due to weather and things like that? Or do you get the full... Oh, absolutely. Details? Yeah, when we... We'll get a pre-alert that there's a mission coming in and we'll get to whatever the location is. So the pilot then they don't they don't have any information on the patient side. They have no idea what they're going for, other than there's a, a request in said area. They'll go to the map. They'll go to the weather and check to make sure that they can do it safely. Make sure that they're not going to uh, push the limits of flight, and we're fairly stringently regulated here in Canada as far as flight minimums of, of what they can fly, and if they can do it safely and they're not going to hour out and they're not going to get into any type of emergency, like up here we have, you know, freezing temperatures quite quite often, like in the fall and in the spring. And as long as it can be done safely, the pilots accept it. And then we start to get some information from our transport physician who's online with uh, whether it's a, usually in a facility and getting some patient information, and then we get brought into the call as, as far as what's going on. Okay, sure. Uh, and we'll talk about weather environment there too, but you just mentioned the, the air crew hours. As backseaters, do you guys have any hourly restrictions on you guys? Well, as an organization, uh, we can only work uh, a day shift or a night shift and need to have a shift off in between. Okay. So we can either work 11-hour uh, days or 13-hour nights. That's what our shifts are. Uh, we can work one or the other, and then we need to have, you know, the opposite of that off in order to do another shift. Shift. So if we work a 13-hour night, then we need to have 11 hours off during the day so that we can work another 13-hour night. Or inversely, if we're working a day shift, we got to have the night off in order to work another day. Okay, so you got longer night shifts. Is that because there's an expectation at some point there you're, you're getting a, a sleep during the night, or that 11 hours versus 13 hours? Well, that's for air medical crew. Our pilots are regulated through Transport Canada. They have a, a maximum of 15 hours that they're able to work. So if they're working at 13-hour night and they get dispatched, you know, at hour 12, they have to have the aircraft back on the ground within three hours. Sure. No, I was just, yeah, just interested that, uh, yeah. that the night shifts were longer than the, than the day shifts. Uh, I think typically that's, how we are. I know we are on ground. We work 14-hour nights and 10-hour days. Yeah, okay. Because, yeah, I don't know, just generally, like, human factors-wise, you think the uh, the nighttime work would be uh, harder, you know, shift work and things like that on the uh, on the body and things like that. But, yeah, fair enough. Shift work tends to be a little bit harder on the body, but people that, like myself, who've done it for a number of years, I I, I don't think I could work a Monday to Friday eight to five job. They would kill me. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, <laughs> like career nurses and things like that. Yeah, you know, their uh, their social lives and body clocks, and you know, they can put their head on the pillow whatever yeah. time of day it is and, and go to sleep. It's uh, yeah, it does some weird stuff. Yeah. All right, Benny. Let's talk about the weather then. Um, you know, you obviously talk about icing and things like that. But what sort of elevations? Uh, you know, would you typically fly to whether it's you know hospitals or scenes and things like that? Um, what's what's the sort of um, environment that you guys operate within? Uh, repeat that question again. Yeah, I was just interested in like elevations and the types of terrain uh, that you sort of operate in. Oh, uh, and we actually haven't like talked. Topography so, and stuff. Yeah, so uh, I guess if we looked at Canada, you're kind of 
in the in the middle, essentially. Is that about right where, where you guys are? Yeah. We have uh, a few mountain ranges. Uh, I know our base in Calgary and our base in Grand Prairie can fly into mountain ranges. And uh, we're an unpressurized aircraft, of course, in a helicopter. And uh, we get up to 10,000 feet going over uh, and through some of the passes. But other than that, uh, our altitude typically is between two and 3,000 feet. Okay. Above sea level. And what sort of temperatures would you get, um, you know, difference between summer and, uh, and winter? Oh, well, summer depends on what part of the country you happen to be in. Alberta, we're pretty, we have a fairly mild climate. So, you know, we'll get up to maybe 32 or so. That'd be a hot day, centigrade, during the summer. I would say most of our days are 27 or 28. 29 degrees in that area. Winter, inverse, direct inverse of that, uh, we see temperatures of minus 30 and minus 40. All right, mental note, I'll, I'll come visit Canada in, in, uh, in summer. <laughs> in summer. Summer is the best place to visit us. Unless you ski, and then we got great skiing up here. Sure. How's the um, the French language go? Like, um, you know, again, I apologize for my lack of knowledge about Canada, yeah. but uh, you know, I used to hear like on the uh, like the military documents, you'd open the book one way, and the first half of the book would be French, and then you'd have to turn it over and, and open it the other way, and the, the second half yeah. be English. So, what's the the mix of language yeah. with uh, in there in the, in the operations? Uh, it doesn't really affect us in Alberta, like in the western provinces. Uh, if you get to the, you know more to the middle of Canada and of course Quebec, that's going to be all like a lot of French speaking, and definitely you'll need to have a second language down there because English is our primary here. And aviation-wise, though, like across the country, it'd still be pretty well English-based for aviation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, the next bit I was, I was going to talk about is. You know, just on the, on the aviation experience, and I guess one, like, do you guys, do you keep a logbook at all? Do you log your flight time? No. Okay. And no, we don't. And the other part is, you know, obviously, I think, I'll scroll back up, I think it was 16 years you've been a flight par- paramedic, is that 16 years? Uh, yeah, I've been, I've been with STARS uh, just coming into my 17th year now, and I've done groundwork for 20. Wow. That's a... Yeah, a fair whack of experience, but even just on the aviation side, like in that time, just purely being around helicopters for that long and doing the operations, you, you build up a huge amount of aviation knowledge. I was just interested, like, how does it work in the in the crew dynamic? Um, you know, when you have new pilots come on board, and you know, we talk about situational leadership. There's going to be times where yeah, you know, you don't do a, yeah, you know, a new, a new location for them that you've been to plenty of times and things like that before. How's that crew dynamic sort of work, um, you know, once you're up and flying in, in the aviation side between, yeah. you know, someone who's got that much experience in the back with it for yourself and, and the pilots? How do you sort of work that around and any particular stories that you can sort of talk about there? So um, we tend to, uh, I would say that our situational awareness and our communications both on the aviation side and the air medical side, they blend together quite well. Because our pilots are our pilots and air medical crew, it's like one big happy family for the most part, or a dysfunctional family some some other times. But uh, when it comes to recognizing things that are not normal, things that you're not that you're not feeling safe about, 
you, all you need to do is buzz the pilots and say, I'm not happy or I'm not um, secure with, with this. And then the comms are open and you can talk about whatever whatever that problem is. So even if we're inbound to a scene call that we're not happy about, we'll talk about it as a crew and come up with a decision as a crew. It's not a unilateral decision. All right. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Because I used to know, like, you used to fly with the experienced um, light masters in the back, and you know, sometimes like it's just you know they had so much experience, they knew so many different things about the operation. You're here as a, a new pilot, and uh, yeah, it was yeah. very you know super useful having that sort of experience on board with the the scene calls. Like when you're arriving, awesome. um, when you're arriving off off airfield, how involved are you guys mm-hmm. in the back with the the actual landing? Like, will you guys crack the doors and you know be eyes at the back of the helicopter and things like that, or is it a you know a delineation between medical jobs and, and air crew jobs? How does that side of things work? So aviation has a very specific component, and the air medical side has a very specific component. Once we're on a scene call, so uh, I'll talk a little bit about uh, doing a, a rural type scene call. Uh, we'll get the, the coordinates the pilots will have. They'll be outbound. We'll be, um, you know, on the outbound leg. We'll get some information from our link center, which is our dispatch center. And they will tell us who's doing our landing zone information, who's doing our landing zone prep, and who do we contact on and what frequency do we contact them on. And... Once we are probably within about five minutes of the scene, it's the air medical crew that uh, contact the scene and ask for a landing zone briefing. So landing zone briefings, and uh, this was a a combined effort between aviation and air medical um, of what types of things do we need to ask for on scene, how's the scene laid out, where do they want us approaching from? Where do they want us to land? Are we, how close are we to the scene? What direction are we from the scene? What types of hazards are on scene? Uh, high obstacles, wires, any signage, traffic, anything that's going to be hazard, uh, even people. And we'll ask for that landing zone briefing uh, on the outbound lake within about five minutes. Once we get all the information, the pilots are listening into the conversation that. The, the medic and the ground units are having and we'll buzz the pilots and say, how does that sound? Do you guys need any more information? And if there's something else that they're not happy with, they'll ask for it. And if other than that, they'll say, I think we have everything and we take one uh, pass around the scene, one circuit, make sure that what we have is a visual picture matches the actual scene itself. And, plan our approach, keep our comms open, and then everybody has eyes and ears out for any types of hazards that could get us into trouble uh, landing on on a sea. So at that point on the approach, are you in your seat or are you guys on harness with your head out the door? Like, Do you give any sort of clearance information to the pilots? Uh, no, we're just in our in our four-point regular seatbelt harnesses and uh, doors are closed until we get on the ground. Then our safety pilot will get out um, and crack the door of the paramedic, and then he will he will take his stance in between the uprights, just below the tail, just in front of the tail board. Okay. To make sure nobody and polices that area stringently. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I wasn't sure about how that sort of things um, yeah, went down. 
And uh, do you guys do any NVG operations? Yeah, uh, pilots are all NVG trained. Okay. So in that situation uh, in the back, uh, have you got curtains for the front so you guys can do work in the back with yeah. lights on? Okay. That's correct, yep. Yeah. Oh, excellent. What about, um, you know, from the experience, people like, and I guess we focus on the aircrew side here going into that sort of role, what uh, what tips can you pass on about the, the flying side uh, for the for the aeromedical? So, you know, what things do you have to think about for, for patient care as far as, you know, flight profiles and, and heights that you fly at and things like that? Can you just give a, you know, a, a very small introduction to the physiological or the you know, things we need to think about as, as front seaters uh, to make life easier for yeah. the in the back? Well, I think as on the aeromedical side, Probably the the biggest thing that that we do is, like I had said earlier, is that don't put yourself into or your patient into an emergency. So what that means is that anticipate what's going to happen before it becomes an emergency. And I, I always have a saying, I say critical care is knowing what's coming at you in time to change the outcome. So if you know that the expected course is going to, the patient's going to decline, then instead of waiting for them to completely decline to where you have to intervene, intervene earlier with safer steps so that it's not an emergent thing or an emergency. And you tend to get things prepped better. You have a better plan. You have a better approach. You have more backup plans. And so that you never get yourself in an emergency. And when I, you know, over the years, I, I've had the opportunity to work with great physicians and great medics and great nurses, and they never seem to get into in, into trouble or into problems. And, you know, I, I found myself asking why. And these guys are like time travelers because they never work in the here and now. They're working 15 minutes from now, 20 minutes from now, 30 minutes from now, or an hour from now, because they know what the expected course is, and they've started and they've pardon me, they've initiated processes, they've initiated treatments, so they can start to maybe deviate that path that the patient's already currently on, and they never seem to get into trouble because they're always ahead of the curve. They know what's going to happen. They always expect the worst and they plan for the worst. And even if the worst happens, they're ready for it. So even if they have an intubation that doesn't necessarily go the right way, they have steps in place that are just automatic. When the first one fails, they go to plan B. Plan B fails, they go to plan C until they actually get to where they need to be with this patient care. So I think as air medical crew, we need to be working in the future. We need to be working 15 or 20 minutes from now or half an hour from now because that way we will never get into trouble and the patient will never end up in an emergency state. And I think when you work on ground, we never spend the time training our staff to live in the future, if that makes sense. Yeah. Look, there's so much of that that is also like take the, the medical side completely out and drop that over any kind of aviation, you know, operation as well. And uh, exactly that's, the that's same awesome. thing. Yeah, yeah. And our pilots, like, they come in with a minimum of I, I think it's it's either two or four thousand hours of flight hours. That's before the organization even looks at them. So most of our pilots are military trained. 
And they come in with a wealth of knowledge and experience already. And then they come into our culture and, and learn what we do. And it's, it truly is a beautiful system that we have. It truly is. I think it'd be fascinating. My wife's a, uh, a general practice doctor, and so she went through her yeah. degree, and, and obviously, you know, working, you know, pick up bits and pieces along the way. And it's, uh, I, I don't think I'd like to do the training; <laughs> it looks too hard. But uh, it's definitely interesting uh, her cases as she comes along, and and, uh, and and you know, again, personal stories as far as we had nothing to do with um, having to be on the receiving end of of a EMS flight or anything like that. But you know, our son is anaphylactic, and uh, he had an episode. We had uh, two ambulance rush to the to the restaurant, and uh, yeah. I've got to tell you, you know, having the paramedics, whether it's you know airborne or in vehicles, step out, and it's just like you know, you're like angels <laughs> turning up, and uh, so totally, yeah, very much so. And I don't know, Benny, have you got some like really memorable cases, either you know, aviation wise or on, oh. like, on the on the medical side, taking them on board? Um, that you can tell us about? Like, we might start, you know, have you ever had a really close call on the aviation side as far as uh, helicopter operations go? Well, interestingly enough, I can talk about the close call, which just happened here. The last flight crew that I was on, we actually had a bird strike, which happens to be the number one killer for taking down any type of aircraft. So we're we're pretty fortunate that we're in the AW-139 because it can take, I think it's cruising is 155, 158, right in that area knots. And it can take a bird strike of a six pounds and not come through the windscreen, which is huge. Yeah. So, and the reason is, is that it, it's actually glass in the AW. So we were outbound to uh, pick up a fairly sick patient an hour out of our, our center. And we were literally a minute from the base and we took a bird strike on, on takeoff. So we ended up uh, canceling the mission, coming back and landing at base. We lost our comms because it actually took off one of our antennas, I believe. And that's one of the things, like as far as close calls that we've had, that's been the most recent. And we do have some bird strikes up here, but that's probably the you know, some of the things that we do have close calls on. No, that's interesting, because, um, well, back to some of the earlier stuff then. So what sort of percentage did you say would be like off-airfield off landing versus a, a fairly controlled, you know, helicopter or helipad environment? Uh, like as an emergency landing? Yeah, like, like roadside or, you know, in a, in a park or things like that. Yeah, uh, none. We have a pretty safe organization, and um, we've had... Um, since I've been with this organization, we've lost an engine. We, the BK is a dual engine aircraft and can fly on one engine. So it's a really, really safe aircraft. But they ended up having to land with one engine, which is, of course, I'm not aviation trained. But it, the pilots do tend to get a little bit busier up front. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does, it does make it a little so bit easier. Yeah, they had that a little run-on landing with the helicopter quite a few years ago now. Uh, and bird strikes, we usually, we can continue to, unless, like, you lose flight controls, which you, which we have never done. Uh, we never have had that happen since I've been with this organization at all. We haven't had a downed aircraft since, well, since the inception of STARS anyway. We've, we've been 
pretty safe. And part of that is having two pilots, having just a different or having more safety within the aviation side. Yeah. No, it's uh, interesting because, again, you know, with increased urbanisation, especially doing EMS work where you're, you know, landing yeah. in, in off-airfield sites, you know, the wires and, and that sort of uh, things just become a, a huge consideration too. So, yeah, okay. Yeah, and our, our engineering department is absolutely exquisite. They keep us all safe. And, our, and again, like our pilots come with such a wealth of knowledge that they keep us safe as well. And, you know, it's because of good pilots with fantastic training that they send us home at the end of every shift. Yeah. And on the, the medical side, is there a really memorable, you know, pickup or a, a case that you've been called to? Oh, uh, numerous. <laughs> How can I imagine? I think any time, you know, yeah, it's, I think any time that we have a patient that you think is not going to survive and come back in and say thank you to us, which is a fairly common thing, is is awesome. You know, and it happens to all of our crews. So no, that'd be a good feeling. But yeah, it, it's pretty awesome when you're going out and, and talking to uh, paramedics in, in the ground role and that about the aviation role. Like, what's the sales pitch if anyone's listening who's uh, in that position and thinking about doing the aviation side? What's the sales pitch to come across as a, a flight paramedic? Um, so I just make sure I understand the question, like new people coming into the organization or, or thinking about coming into the organization, uh, you know, go to the aviation side or the paramedicine side. Is that correct? Yeah, no, I was actually going to think about the, the paramedic side. So I know in your role, you do a, you know, a lot of interagency work and a lot of training, but uh, when you're in front of a room yeah. of ground paramedics talking about the aviation side, what's the, uh, the sales pitch yeah. to, to get them to come across as flight paramedics? I think we're, all kind of medics. I believe that we come with a different experience level just simply because we're exposed to different calls on a routine basis. And I can only speak from my experience. Is that when I first started in this organization, every call that I went out to was an emergency. I can't believe we just did that call. Holy man, I've never done one of those on the ground ever. So everything for the first, I don't know how many years, was like that. And now those, that's just kind of part of our, our normal routine day. Whereas in ground EMS, they may not be able to, you know, have different vent strategies based on blood gases or have some different tools in their toolkit for managing, you know, art patients or ventilation challenge patients where they have really high peak or plateau pressures and you really have to kind of play with your vent and play with vent strategies so that they don't get any sicker, but yet you don't hurt their lungs at all. So it just comes with, over time, it comes with a different level of experience just simply because we routinely do a higher acuity call compared to what they do on ground. I'm not saying that ground doesn't do a higher acuity calls, but they don't. They certainly don't do them as frequently. Well, it's the nature of the operation. You know, by the time you're calling in a helicopter, it's um, I guess things have escalated normally. Generally, you know, like they know that the patient's in uh, an emergent state and needs to get to a, you know, whether it's a level one trauma facility or into a CCU or a cath lab quickly. 
you know, that's generally when, when we get called or their resources are completely taxed out at a, within a, uh, an area and we're the first call now because yep. we're the quickest. Oh, I was just, I forgot to mention, like with our organization, we also have like uh, rural training programs. So I'm out in Manitoba right now and we're going to go spend some tomorrow and the next day working with physicians and residents and, and staff on critical care management. So our program has developed a human patient simulator program. They put it in a bus and, oh my goodness, I've been doing mobile simulation for about 14 years. And we travel throughout our province training nurses, physicians, and medics on critical care management. So we'll go out in typical cases that we find that are tend to be globally mismanaged. We go out and give those cases and let them work through them. And then we debrief it at the end. And, you know, things that they've done really well, we want to instill in, in them to keep those practices. And the things that they need to alter, we also let them know that. So the end of the day is to improve patient care. And, you know, I don't care how we do it, as long as we do it. And... One of the nice things about simulation and on the aviation side, our pilots are always going to do training in flight simulators, and that's just routine for them for some of their certifications and just for con ed. We've, with the human patient simulator program, that's what we do for medical patients. The brain does not differentiate between simulation and reality. So, if you work through a really complicated medical case or a really sick medical case or a trauma case in simulation and have a debriefing at the end, the body and pardon me, the brain just marks that up as education and it begins to fill up your library. Same on the aviation side is that when they do flight simulation, it's they're building their library. So if they do have an in-flight emergency, it's just routine to them because they've done it, you know, 13,000 times in flight simulation. Yeah. Patient simulation is exactly the same. So we do, like, part of our monthly training is we do, like, our transport physicians come in and put the air medical crew through simulation training. And, you know, super complicated cases and then debrief them at the end. So, you know, when we do get out and have some of those types of patients, it's not our our first time working with them and we tend to manage them way better than what we normally would have without that experience. So that's one of the things that we do and we do tons of rural simulation and in-house simulation training and in-house education for not for not only us but also for anybody else who wants to come in and do types of training like that. Oh that's fantastic. So yeah it's a pretty cool pretty cool organization. I've been really fortunate to work with them for that long and see how things have changed over the years. But also now I can go out and instill some of the things that we have learned as an organization and not only as an organization, but also the things that we have learned as our medical crew to make people's jobs much easier, not only for new staff coming in with us, but also when I go out and I do training with ground EMS, I give them my brain. Yeah, so the things that I've learned, yeah, and I just, it's just, here, take it, take it. 
So if you can teach a concept and teach the why behind things happen, people keep that. And, it, you know, whether it's six months from now or a week from now or a year from now, if they understand the why it happens and why when you initiate different types of treatments that things improve, they'll always remember that. So that's what we do with an organization as well. And you're, you're in a pretty unique spot there too. Like, you know, so much of aviation now is on, and it has been for ages, on threat and error management and, and crew resource management and, uh, yep. you know, error yep. elimination and things like that. And it kind of seems from the outside that the, the medical world's only really picked that up in the last sort of five years or so. That uh, Exactly. You know, before that, it was yep. a lot of, you know, if you're the, the surgeon, then, you know, you were you know, incapable of making a mistake and things like that. So yeah, like have you got yeah yeah? Do you see much? Do you in that role where you are now? Do you see that transfer between industries or is medical? Oh, huge! To, yeah. yeah, it's been a huge transfer. So and and that's like we have brought that you know that situational awareness, object fixation. We've brought that in from mediation side. So we've we've put maybe different names to it, but it's identifying a risk or a threat just like aviation identifies a risk or a threat and we've applied it to the medical side so that now once we've identified it now we know how to fix it and not only so there's that component but new people coming in now you can teach that so that they're not going to end up in object fixation or miss a threat and you know even in in on the aviation side in crashes it's not that it hasn't been noticed, it's not been voiced. So if you look at, you know, some of the crashes and things, a, a problem has clearly been identified by somebody, but they've never brought it to the attention of the air medical side or brought it to the aviation side. But, you know, they'll say, oh, that, you know, I thought I felt a vibration or a hum when we took off, which isn't normal. Well, just don't forget about it, tell aviation about it because maybe they haven't picked up on it yet. You know, it could be a new pilot. Maybe they haven't been with that organization for as long as, you know, maybe their medical crew have been in the back. So they'll be like, hey, there's a different sound. There's a different feel. There's a different vibration than how it felt when we were in the aircraft yesterday. What do you guys think? You know, that's some of the stuff that aviation has brought over to us that in order to... To actually fix a threat, it has to be identified and it has to be voiced. And, you know, that's one of the things I think what you're kind of commenting on, Nick, is that over the last probably five years or so, that's really became more prevalent in the air medical side, where it wasn't before. All right, Bernie, how can folks find out a little bit more about the organization there at STARS? Is there, what's the best website address? Okay, so um, we've been... SARS has been around, we started in Calgary in 1985, six six years later in 91, we started in Edmonton and they started with one aircraft at each base and it was literally, you know, week to week and month to month whether they were still going to be around and it's taken several years, decades to have the organization that of course that we have today and we've improved training on both the aviation side as well as the medical side 
We have an induction program for new staff, which we didn't have initially like years ago, so that people are better prepared for when they for when they do get into the organization, whether air medical or uh, aviation side, so that we can actually address those emergencies much safer and more effectively and more efficiently than what we did even five years ago or ten years ago. Is it um, government funded? What's the funding model for STARS? Uh, we are a society, so it's all fundraising. We uh, about uh, I wouldn't say it's all fundraising, but a huge part of what we do is fundraising. The mission itself, like when the aircraft takes off and lands, that's covered by government. But everything else that's in behind the scenes is not. So that's all fundraising. So I think my figures might be a little bit wrong, but it's between 70 and 80% is what we rely on for fundraising. 20% is generally what is covered by government. And I've just actually looked it up. So uh, folks, the, the website stars.ca and uh, S-T-A-R-S. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, yeah, the, the pictures there like they look like immaculate machines. And it's got interesting. It's got a live map there with uh, the actual calls that are going on right now. So it says that, uh, you know, Star 11 has just been dispatched for, into hospital yeah. transfer and things like that. So it's pretty cool to check out. So it's stars.ca. Yeah, that's our, I think that's our Saskatoon model. Yeah. Not 100% sure. I think so. Excellent. So, uh, star three, star five, uh, star seven, nine, and 11. Yeah, well, it's got, uh, yeah, one Calgary. But yeah, anyway, people can you can check that out on, on the website. Well, awesome. Look, that's fantastic. Is there is there anything else you wanted to sort of share while we got you? Um, uh, no, I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to, to talk to you and talk to a little bit about our organization. And, you know, I think if I was going to leave with a message, and I, I know I've said it already, but uh, critical care is knowing what's coming at you in time to change the outcome. So stay ahead of the curve, anticipate what's going to happen, and change the course before it's an emergency. Nice tops. Thanks very much, Bernie. Thank you very much for your time. That was uh, awesome. Thanks for getting in touch with me. That was Bernie Walker from the Canadian EMS group STARS talking about the helicopter paramedic role. I tend to see a heap of crossover between medicine and aviation as my wife works as a a general practice doctor here in Australia, so I get to see a little bit of both sides. Both fields have to deal and manage risk, uh, time pressures, and a huge body of of technical knowledge, and both have really complex and expensive equipment their own sort of industry insider uh, speak and terms and abbreviations. I found Bernie talk there at the, at the end uh, and also during the interview about this idea of working in the future, you know, always being 15 or 30 minutes ahead of the, the patient care. And I think that's a really good place to uh, leave this interview as it fits into, you know, very closely with how we operate on the aviation side. So that was stay ahead of the curve, anticipate what is going to happen, and change the course before it's an emergency. A quick World Helicopter Day update. There are now events planned in Canada, the US, England, Northern Ireland, Australia, and just waiting to confirm on South Africa and New Zealand. This is for the 16th of August, 2015. If you're listening to this in the future and want a current date for that year, or you just want to find out more, then visit worldhelicopterday.com and you can sign up for email news updates there.
If you would like to hold an open day to bring in locals on World Helicopter Today and show off what it is that you do and your machines, then just get in contact via the website to have your event listed on the, the world event list. And please spread the word. Past guest Jerry Grayson will be in my neck of the woods this weekend for the Queensland Air Museum's Open Cockpit Weekend. He's going to be signing some of his books, so I'm trying to get up there and catch up with him and grab a, a photo, so keep an eye out for that. That's it for this episode. Don't forget to post your favorite Human Factors links or on Facebook or in the comments for episode 32 on the website, rotarywingshow.com. You'll find the links for the show social media pages on the website too, and I'd love to catch up and hear your news and see photos about what you guys are up to uh, there as well. I've been your host, Mick Cullen. Catch you in the next episode.